Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. This is uh, known as the sleepy session. 3.30 in the afternoon, uh, you, you've kind of, you've had, you've had lunch, you've had your early session, and now you're just trying to figure out if you can make it to the dinner break. So we're going to try, we're going to try to make this uh, pretty fast moving and fast paced. I'm going to leave some time at the end to, uh, for you to ask questions and to dialogue. Uh, for those of you who may not know who I am, my name is Ross Parsley, and uh, I was the worship pastor here at New Life for 19 years. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a, a, a 19 years full of adventure. And um, and so five years ago, uh, I went and planted a church. In fact, New Life Church sent me. Brady paid my salary for uh, six months. They sent us with a bunch of money, and they and they about fifty people came with us. Like like left their jobs, went to Austin and got jobs. It was an, a really incredible uh, experience. And so so I'm here as kind of part of the family that's been part of New Life for a long time, and. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my journey in church planting. We just celebrated our five-year anniversary uh, just this month uh, as a church in Austin, Texas. And so it's called One Chapel. And so I, I'm so excited about what Jesus has done in our church and in people's lives. But it has been a really um, amazing journey of, of, of both challenge, you know, like valleys and mountaintop experiences, very exhilarating, uh, but also overwhelming and discouraging at points. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that arc of experience, and I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of uh, making disciples. And uh, we're going to talk about discipleship. Here's, here's what I want to say before we pray. This is not a class where I'm going to tell you all the answers to making disciples. This is a class where I'm going to tell you my experience and some things that I've learned, and hopefully we'll have a good dialogue about it, because I am definitely in process about how we make disciples in the 21st century America that we live in, in an urban setting. It is, I think, one of the most challenging things we're facing as a church, and so... Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you some things that I've probably done poorly, and I'm going to talk to you about some things that I think we've done well, and some things that I think we've learned that we really are just now implementing and, and figuring out with some trial and error. Okay, is that, is, do you understand that? Do you understand the premise of the class? Okay, turn to your neighbor, say he doesn't know all the answers. Okay, so that's good. Okay, all right. So... <laughs> So, so let's pray, and then we will um, we'll get into this. Okay, Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much for how you, you lead us, you guide us, you take us on a journey. This is not just a transaction with you. You are with us on this, on this pathway. And you're leading us and guiding us. And really, our responsibility is just to follow you, is to surrender to you, is to yield to you. And so, Lord, we want to do that. We want to live that way as your people. We want to be disciples. And so, Lord, would you teach us some things? Would you speak in this room, even as I'm speaking, even as we're dialoguing? Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us about our locations, our contexts in which we do ministry. And, Lord, we, we just choose today to listen to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I went to Austin, I had... Uh, as I said, I'd been here for 19 years, and I, I, I knew how to do one thing pretty well. Um, I believed in the, the idea of relational ministry, um, but what I'd had experience with is getting a whole bunch of people in a big room and, and experiencing the presence of God together. I knew how to do that really well. What I did not know how to do really well was take a person who had no knowledge of who Jesus 
is or even understand the story and how to take them from where they are in a way that is relational and and engaged and and dealing with them in their kind of the mess of their circumstances and turn them into a mature follower of Christ. And the truth be told, I think I'm still I'm still gr- growing in that and, and learning even though I think I could point to you know disciples uh, who 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 I invested in over the many years that I did ministry here. Um, it's interesting to think about worship ministry. Sometimes I think worship ministry gets insulated uh, in, in the church world from people who are really um, just going through the very basics and trying to learn uh, the, the story of their own life and what Christ is doing in them. You get insulated because you're trying to make sure that the most mature among us are standing on the stage helping to lead worship. And so, uh, so th- this, this process of going to Austin was incredibly challenging. And, I, and I, knew that, I knew that it was going to be, when I got there, really my first small group of men. I, I, we started some launch team meetings and, and we had all these people that went with us, people that had, that had come with us over the summer and, and they, they were starting to engage. And, and so we had this little community of people. We were meeting in a, a, a place, a Baptist church. It was called Manshack Baptist Church. It was way on the south side of the city and they let us use their youth room and it smelled bad. And but they but they said you can use it and so we had to we had to like buy good smell stuff to try to make it feel better and we had to get all the stuff and throw it in the closet because it was so ratty and nasty and so people would come to this thing and so I started a small group about three months in with some guys who I knew were uh, really just kind of wrestling with their faith and so I had two agnostics in that first group people who believed there was a God, but they weren't convinced Jesus was him. And then had a, a, a guy who um, was, um, he was, a, he was a gay Christian by his definition. And so he, he was living his lifestyle, and, but, but interested in God um, and what God was doing in his heart. And then um, I had a guy who had married his last affair. That was my first small, men's small group. <laughs> And, and I prayed a lot during that first year. <laughs> and uh, and, and what, I, what I realized was there is, a, there is a way of walking with people towards Jesus that demands our full attention, that demands uh, our life be opened up to them, for them, and with them. And, uh, and, and as, as, I, as I went through that process, I started to agonize because truth be told, um, the city I live in is pretty reflective of that first small group. And, um, and uh, let's see, I think four of those guys are still in our church and doing great. I, I lost one. Doing great. Four of them lost. I mean, even Jesus was 11 out of 12. So, you know, it's like. <laughs> but our, but. Austin, I want, I want you to think about this. Austin, I think, has, is one of those cities. Uh, the statistics say that 60,000 people a year are projected to move to Austin over the next five years. 60,000 a year. There's 150 people moving to Austin per day. And, and so um, we have some problems um, as a result of that. We have school problems. We have all kinds of um, economic issues and, and, and education issues and, and then infrastructure issues. But there's people coming and they're not coming from the Bible Belt. They're coming from all kinds of other places that are less churched than Colorado Springs and, uh, and, and other places. And so I, uh, the statistic in Austin is 4.7 churches per 10,000 people. That's what the Austin and the surrounding areas are. And the national average is 12 churches per 10,000 people. So with that amount of people coming, we're never going to catch up, right? Or at least it's going to be several years. So I knew this was a, ch- a place that, that was in need. But if you look at Austin, it's an eclectic mix of intellectuals, artists. They call it the live music capital of the world. Um, 
entrepreneurs, government employees, because it's the capital of Texas, and IT people. It is the blue dot in the red state. And so uh, everybody leans left. The city motto, I mean, is keep Austin weird. Keep Austin weird. I mean, there it's everywhere. It's plastered. It's on signs. It's on. I mean, we we have weird, weird people. Just before I arrived in 2010, uh, one of the, one of the famous characters of the city, a guy who used to wear a thong and ride a bike around downtown, he ran for mayor and got a almost won. Yeah, it was. It's just it. It's just there's just a lot going on there. And what's weird is it's surrounded, right, by cowboys, right? The urban center is surrounded by, by some rural folks and, 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 and people who would be more country, more classic Texas, um, and, and a lot of Baptists, a lot of Baptists and Church of Christ. But there is a deep chasm between those folks and the people who make up the urban core of, of Austin. And, and what I think we have to face is as we're looking at American culture, more people are living in cities than ever before in the world, right? So people are moving back into the city and our city centers are incredibly challenging. Um, and incredibly challenging to be a Christian in and, and to be a city on a hill as I think Glenn Packiam articulated so well this morning. And so... Uh, so just a little bit more description about Austin. Uh, it is a, a very secular city. It's fixated on enjoying life. It's highly recreational. Uh, it's focused on eating and drinking and being merry. <laughs> it is, um, I mean, a, a, eating places are, are what Austin is about. And not franchises. We don't, we don't do franchises very well in Austin. Everybody wants original stuff. And so... Um, there's a strong dose of new age philosophy that lives in the city. Everybody's, as you'll hear this a lot, you know, uh, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. I like to say everybody loves God, nobody likes his family. It's sad. And so uh, there's an emphasis on tolerance, a love for pets, environmentalism, and sexual freedom. Uh. I imagine that it is much like the first century cities of Ephesus and Colossae and Corinth that the Apostle Paul was writing to. Clearly, clearly, I did not know what I was getting into when I went to Austin. Because there is nobody more churched than me. I was born on Saturday and in church on Sunday. My dad was a pastor. I sat on the front row uh, at 16 months old while my mom played the organ and dad preached. So what in the world are you doing with me, God? Why have you sent me here? That wrestling match started about six months in and the agonizing process of realizing that the work that we have to do, the work that we're called to do, is something uh, that we're going to have to sell our souls for. We're going to have to give ourselves away. We're going to have to surrender everything that we know. Um, and so we started in a movie theater. You know how, I won't take too much longer to tell you a story, and I'll, I'll start talking about some points, but just contextually, I just think it's so important because very often we get insulated in our own churches and we don't realize what's going on out there. I didn't want to go to a movie theater because I, like, I, I didn't like the idea of starting having church in a smelly, stinky auditorium that had sticky floors. And so I was like, Lord, I'll go anywhere. You just open any place up. I just don't want to go to a movie theater. <laughs> well, turns out that when the time came, we, there was no place open except the movie theater. So we went to the movie theater and it was so good. It was the right thing for us. It was Jesus' hand at work. And it was God's uh, sovereignty moving in our church called One Chapel. And so we started in a movie theater and we, st we started growing with tons of de-church people and people who had had some 
church experience in their background, but, but came to a movie theater church hoping it would be different. And our goal was to make sure it was different. And so I'd meet them after, after church. I'd stand in the hallway and they'd be streaming out of theater two, which was our theater. There was 14 theaters and, and, and we had, we had four of them. And so they'd stream out of our, and people were, people were going to movies on Sunday morning. I didn't know this. I've been in church since I was a child. I didn't know people went to movies on Sunday morning. Five dollars, five dollar movies before noon. And so people are in the movie theater, and I'd meet them after church. We'd have like we'd have like our donuts and all our coffee out out in the lobby, right? And people would be coming to the movies, and they'd like come over and get our coffee and and eat our donuts, and it was awesome. It was perfect. It was great. And then they'd come out, out of church, and they'd I'd stand there as people were walking by and meet different ones. And as I met them, they'd be like, "Pastor, we came to the movies this morning." And, and it was so bad. It was an awful movie. So we didn't know there were church here, but we heard the music. We just came in. This is awesome. And that's how we got our elders. So we, so we, so I knew we were in trouble and, and, and I knew we were in trouble when, uh, I mean, people were coming and it was starting to get overwhelming by anybody's standards. We were a, a incredible success. Um, I remember the manager of the movie theater, he said to us, said to me in a meeting where I was trying to rent another theater for an overflow room. And he said, yeah, it kind of feels like a church that shows movies and it kind of needs to feel like a movie theater that has a church in it. <laughs> and I knew we weren't going to be there very long after that. And, uh, and, and so they wanted us to go. And so we went into a commercial office building. We moved four times in four years. And because of our size and because of different challenges. And so while all this is going on, these, I, I, I felt like uh, we were wrestling through what, who, God, who are you making us to be? Who are we supposed to be? I believed in an organic presence-based conversational model of church, but I was in over my head. Not in terms of church services or numbers. I knew how to do that but in the task of nurturing, growing, and making disciples. It was clear to me that even the people who appeared to be spiritual, even the people who appeared to be spiritually mature were not. They were often emotionally unhealthy and appeared to be spiritually mature. They were time-strapped. They were other, otherwise unable or unwilling to invest in another person in a significant way. We had captured, we grew to like a thousand people in the first couple of years, first three years of our church. And, and, and so we had captured the low-hanging fruit. The people who were willing to come with their neighbor into a movie theater and try church. And we had a whole bunch of them. I'm still walking with a guy that got saved in one of our first meetings, and he didn't really know anything. And he has been on a roller coaster ride with Jesus. <laughs> and, but it is one of my greatest joys to walk with him and to know that he's going to make it. He is genuinely a follower of Jesus. Many others not quite so successful 21st century Christianity in America is losing its appeal. And so there's a question about how we're going to reach unchurched people who, whose Bible literacy is at an all-time low. And so I started asking the hard questions. Okay, so what do we have to be? Who do, who do we have to be? Where do we have to go with this? I started reading all kinds of all kinds of uh, books. There's a, a book called The Complete Book of Discipleship by Bill Hull. Bill Hull has written a ton of discipleship material, and I think it's great. Mike Breen from the 3DM people. I don't know if you're familiar with those guys. Really good. One of the most influential books in my progress was Building a Discipling Culture by Mike Breen, if you want to write that down. Of course, things like Center Church by Tim Keller and... and um, 
and, and, and crazy, um, you know, sort of church outcasts that are blazing new trails in the missional field, Alan Hirsch and Hugh Halter and those, those guys that are pushing hard against the traditional model of church in America. And I started reading all this stuff and working towards it. And, and I found two kinds of church planters in Austin. And we were sort of, you know, when you're in a city like that, you don't know where, you don't know, like you don't have anywhere to go. You're just going to be buddies with the other guys who are struggling with you. 80, the national average is somewhere near 80% of church plants fail in the first few years. So it's, 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 it's hard work, especially in South Austin. I heard more than I cared to that South Austin was a church planter's graveyard. So here's the dream for me. Here's what I started dreaming about, about four years ago. I started dreaming about a community that would believe. Every person in the community would believe that they could be a disciple. You understand there's a whole bunch of Christians that don't think in, this, in these terms. They're Christians, but they don't really go for the disciple thing. And that distinguishing mark is a very unhealthy thing for our churches. Being a Christian without being a disciple. I don't think it works. It's not what Jesus was talking about. But every person would believe that they could be a disciple and that they could make a disciple. That they could make a disciple. And so I started looking at the challenges. So here's some of the challenges. If you're trying to create a culture of disciple making, what are the challenges of our culture? Well, I've already mentioned a few of them. Everybody's time strapped. The most precious commodity of our culture is time. And let me tell you, it takes, a, it takes time to invest in the life of another person. Busyness is our enemy. And so there is a problem in church life because often we just create so many events and so many programs and so many things that we're doing. We're, we're actually contributing to the problem. We're making people even more busy. And so they don't walk over to their neighbor's yard or their neighbor's driveway and meet them and connect with them and walk with them on a possible journey to introduce Jesus to them. That's kind of a problem. So I'm a, I'm a believer in the simple church model. We're not going to try to be too overwhelming. We're not going to tr- try to get people to do too many events or too many things, but we're going to try to walk with people and to help them. We, another issue of a challenge of our culture is segmented lifestyles. Segmented lifestyles. In other words, everything's segmented into these little boxes, and every, they, they have a lot of relationships across the spectrum, but they're all very shallow. Everything is shallow. And so they know their little league, they're, they're, they're the kids that are in their, sorry, the, the parents of the, their own kids' little league team, they know them, but they only know them in a shallow way. They know people at church, but only in a shallow way. We know people that in, down at the gym, I work out with them all the time, but I, I know them in a shallow way. We have a consumer-based view of Christianity. In other words, what's in it for me? We're not really thinking about how to share our lives with others. Technology-driven versus relationally-driven. In other words, um, everybody thinks that they have a lot of friends because of Facebook. <laughs> when in reality, I'm not sure we know how to have good, meaningful friendships. And then finally, uh, discipleship baggage. Even the Christians, when you say the word discipleship, it's like, ooh, ooh, what does that mean? They have their own view of what the word means, and they, 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 they struggle with some historical view or their own wounded experience. But here's, of course, what Jesus said. I love this. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus said, I, he said it in Matthew 16, 15 through 18. He said, he was talking to Peter and he he challenged him and he wanted to know who do people say that I am? And he's, they're kind of talking about it. And Peter finally said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but blood, but by my father in heaven. And he said, You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Here's what I love. Here's what I believe. Jesus is in charge of his church. We don't have to to be stressed out and freaked out about where we are in American culture. Jesus has the church in his strong hands. All we have to do is follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus said, I will build my church. Sometimes we want to build the church. We want to build a church and hope Jesus makes some disciples. <laughs> no, Jesus said, I will build my church. And then he told us to make disciples. 
So what do we spend most of our time on as volunteers in the local church? What do we spend most of our time on as pastors in leading a congregation? If you go to Matthew 28, and it's the famous passage of the Great Commission, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, everybody say teaching them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If you kind of dissect that passage, you'll find that the emphasis is not on go. We've had a, a long history of the emphasis of that passage. You gotta go! Actually, it's more like as you're going. It's more like, like everywhere you go. Jesus is saying this. Wherever you go, here's what I want you to spend your time and energy on. Making disciples. Wherever you, wherever you go, in whatever culture you find yourself in, I want you to make disciples of every nation, every culture. And then he gave him some ideas about it. He talked about his authority and he talked about uh, immersing people into the, the triune understanding of who we serve as, as, a, as our God and our Savior and our healer and the Holy Spirit. He said, the Father, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, teach them, teaching them to obey. I think the problem is we teach people what they should obey and teach, instead of teaching them how to obey. I, the best example I have of this is teaching my kids how to brush their teeth. So I'm brushing, I'm helping them, my little kids, my eight and 10 years old, and they're still, they're just at the tail end of this, this journey where they resist brushing their teeth at night. Like they try to hide. Like I can warn them of the dangers of bad oral hygiene. I, I can warn them about the, the mean dentist that's going to come and stick a giant needle in their gums. I can say it to them. I can, I can challenge them with it. And still, what do I find? Did you brush your teeth? No. And so I take them in the bathroom and they're there. I'm like, let me see. How's it going? And it's just, no, you're not. Let me see. And they're just, they got one motion. I don't know what this is. It's one motion. And so, you know, you're not getting way, way back there. Here, let me, here, let me, let me hold the toothpaste. Okay, here, toothbrush. Here, you feel that back there? You got to get all the way back there every time. I do that incessantly, night after night after night. And I start thinking, are my kids brain damaged? <laughs> what am I doing? I'm, I'm teaching them how to brush their teeth. I'm not just telling them they should. And if there's one kind of core idea that we should sort of take away in terms of making disciples. It is living our lives with others in a way that we're actually showing them how. How to surrender to Jesus. How to, how to connect to him in a daily way. How to follow him. I love uh, Mike Breen. Here's his quote. He says, if we make disciples, we always get the church. Church is what happens as a result of making disciples. But if we build the church, we rarely get disciples. So we got to work with a definition and the definition's got to go beyond just creating converts or getting people to respond in a service. We got to, we got to work with some kind of definition. And, um, and so, uh, Rick Warren has a great definition. Rick Warren, here's what he says. He says, a, a disciple is a person who acts, thinks, and feels like Jesus. That's an awesome definition. If you, if you use that, um, I think he has that up there. It's a, it's, it's a few slides down so they can write it down. A person, a disciple is a person who acts, thinks, and feels like Jesus. Another friend of mine, a friend of uh, New Life, uh, Britt Hancock, he's, he's a missionary to Mexico. He says it like this. A disciple is a person who has a spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and social attachment to Jesus. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about the implications of what that means. Emotional, a spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and social, social attachment to Jesus. It means everything in your life begins to revolve around him. That's what a disciple is. 
You can read any number of discipleship books and get sort of deeper into definitions, and, and I encourage you to do that. That's what I had to do. Um, um, but, here's, but here's what, I mean, Jesus said it. He's like, if you, you want to know how to boil everything down, there's just two commandments. Here they are. Ready? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? <laughs> and love your neighbor as yourself. It is here that discipleship has its most profound impact. But in a consumer culture where all the arrows point in at us, we have a hard time turning outward towards someone else and walking with somebody else. Jesus said it in Luke 9.23. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. And he actually said daily. Luke records him as, as indicating a daily experience to follow me. And he, and he really said, whoever wants to, the following verses, verse 24, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life, whoever loses their life for me will find it. There is no more fulfilling aspect to our faith than seeing it born in another person and then watching as it takes root and transformation begins to occur in their lives. There is nothing that gives me more joy, hope, fulfillment, and yes, disappointment than that. That challenge, watching that process unfold. So here's what I started thinking about. I was really afraid to have any discipleship model that would simply be boiled down to a class. Now we're gonna, now we're gonna start to get super practical here. I didn't want to just get a, a book and say, okay, here's our discipleship thing. Everybody read the book and go to, and I don't think discipleship is about a nine week course. I didn't want people getting the certificate and going, oh, I'm a disciple. <laughs> and I, and I knew I knew because of the, where our city is at and, and the people who are unreached, it's going to take more than nine weeks. Jesus spent three years with some knuckleheaded fishermen who had parts of the Torah memorized because they'd grown up in it. Right? So, so they, just weren't, they just couldn't go through the, the journey long enough. They weren't really qualified to be rabbis, so they didn't stay in school. They went and learned the trade. But Jesus spends three and a half years with these guys and they still don't get it when he leaves them. They don't really understand what Jesus is doing until the Holy Spirit comes. Suddenly, something happens. Everything that Jesus has put in begins to make sense. It begins to orient. And I think, I think making a disciple is a lot like this. Do you ever take piano lessons? How many people in the room have ever taken piano lessons? Come on, that's not enough. But, but here's the thing. Do you remember piano? So, so some of you took piano lessons and you just, uh, 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 and you're reading music and it's like, and you never, you, you never got to this moment, this moment where you realize that it's a closed system and everything relates to everything else. That there's something called the circle of fifths. That, that this chord relates to that chord and it's right here next to the fingering for this chord and you're like, and there's a moment in, yeah, so never mind, this analogy is not working because you're all looking at me like, nope, never made it. <laughs> because suddenly your fingering begins to go there naturally. Something happens between here and here and here that starts to make sense and you're not even thinking about it. It's not even like, it, 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 you're not trying to make it happen with the notes and it's like, no, it's like, oh, this is awesome. And most of you haven't experienced that and I would say that's probably the way most of the churches in America. They've sort of never gotten to this point where it all became part of their head and their heart and their hands. Head, heart, and hands. That's a big one. Understanding it intellectually, understanding it with their soul, with their heart, with their emotions, with their mind, and then, and then, with their, and then actually doing it. Man, I think we got 50, 60, 70 years of 
the, the mind thing. The discipleship is all about information going in. So I started thinking, so what is it going to look like to create an organic or uh, relational discipleship model that my people, my people in my church can understand? So I came up with four pillars, and here they are. Here's, what, here's, the, here's the pillars that I'm currently working with. And the first one's going to surprise you. The first idea is that discipleship is cyclical. Cyclical. It's a cycle. If you think about, if you think about the beginning of creation, you see that everything in creation is based on a seasonal dynamic. We're going to see winter, spring, summer, fall, and then we're going to see it again. In creation, you had day and night turning, day and night. You had weeks that were a cycle, a season, and you, you, you see this playing out. All of creation is sort of based on seasons. And, and life kind of translates this way. If you think about what you were doing five years ago, most likely in our culture for sure, it was something really different than what's going on right now. Because there's a cycle to our lives. And I think, I think sometimes in our, in our American model, we've said that discipleship is point A to point B, C, D, and it's linear. And I think we got to look at discipleship as a cyclical model that has seasons to it. And there are seasons where God is working in people's lives, and we have to learn to spot that. But more than that, I think we grow in a seasonal way in Christ. We don't learn it all at the beginning. It's like we don't go to first grade and get it all. You go through, you go through first grade, second grade, third grade, all the way to 12th grade, and what happens to our educational system, right? The problem we come out at 12th grade with is, oh, there were some days we missed, <laughs> There were some holes in that education. My, my mom got sick or, or we had to go uh, bury my grandma and I wasn't there that day that they talked about uh, verbs. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm being honest, like that happens to people and they get gaps in their education and then they, they, it, they always struggle with it. That's true of Christians too. That's true of, they get, they get gaps in their, edu in their education. There's a cyclical model of growth in the kingdom of God, a seasonal model. I'll give you an example. When I was a college student, I realized, I had a, a moment of revelation, I am incredibly selfish. I'm a selfish dude. I, I want what I want. I want my way. And, and so I, what did I try to do? I prayed. I asked the Lord to help me. I tried to be nice to my dorm mate. I tried to... Um, I went on a missions trip, you know, I did things, and I was like, okay, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm being more loving. It's good. It's good. But then something strange happened. I got married. <laughs> and I was, it was like I was back there again, and suddenly I, I, I'm really selfish. Like, I want my own way, and I can win every argument if I really want to. I can manipulate. I can do, and I realized, ooh, this is ugly, I'm really selfish. So I tried, you know, I went to some seminars. I, uh, I, I, I read some books. I did some things. I tried to be a better husband. I wanted to be a good husband. And so I, I became a better husband. I felt pretty good about myself. And then something really weird happened. I had kids. There is nothing that will test your selfishness more than a tiny little baby who will only eat, sleep, poop, and scream. There's this seasonal nature that Christ works in us and with us. And when we see it as knowledge and we see it as, as linear, yeah, that, that, that's not what Jesus had in mind when he, was tr when he was saying, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. So this cyclical, seasonal dynamic, and I think it fits into the life of a church. The life of a church is cyclical and seasonal. People, feel, people are leaning in during the fall, you know, as they get their schedules back, and then they lean back out at the holidays. <laughs> and then they, at the beginning of the year, yes, I'm going to lean back in. I'm going to seek God. And people come back to church. and there's a, there's, a, there's a seasonal nature to this thing. And so I think it's, I think we got to cooperate with that and we got to believe that that's happening. And, and here's what I, why I think that's so important. Because it's not just new believers who need to be discipled. 
It's not just new believers who need to be discipled. I mean, discipleship, discipleship is not a program. It's not a production line. It's not just for beginners. It's not just for leaders. It's not just for professionals. It's not just for people who like structure. It's for everybody. And we are growing as disciples. What did Jesus say? We read it. Take up your cross. How often? In a cyclical way. You got to get up every morning and, and death to the flesh. Life in Jesus. That's the only way it works. Secondly, I started thinking about how I wanted it to be relational. Not, I wanted it to be dri- driven by relationships, not by information. Relational. Um, it kind of speaks for itself. I don't need to talk on this a long time. Um, what I will say is relationships are the ligaments and the connecting tissue of the body of Christ. And I think a body grows together it doesn't grow separately. It doesn't grow apart. If you cut a piece off of the body, it stops growing. Right? So there's a connectedness. Ephesians 4.15. Ephesians 4.15 is one of the cornerstone scriptures of one chapel. It says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow into him who is the head, Christ Jesus. Speaking the truth in love. We're going we're gonna to walk with each other and we're going we're gonna to build a relationship where, where we're not being um, doubted when we speak the truth. That, that we build such a strong relationship. And make no mistake, all the work is in building a love relationship. All the work is in making sure that the person you're walking with in life or in your small group believes that you don't have bad motives toward them. That you love them. And then you can tell them anything. So it's, it's highly relational. And then the third thing is it's, well, let me just, before I get there, there, the measurement, the measurement of the fruit of the spirit only happens in relationships. It's the, it's the way we grow in relationships because relationships test us and, and we challenge one another, we speak to one another, when we work with one another, we grow together. But then it also is this measurement system. How do you know if you're really loving? How do you know if you're really loving? You can be a smart dude. You can know all about the scriptures. You can have the Bible memorized and you're still not a good disciple because you're mean to people. And some of, the, some, of the worst, some of the worst damage we've done as the body of Christ is we know a lot of stuff and then we're mean to people. And that's what's making them resistant of even coming with us to church to a movie theater. They don't even want to touch this. Relationships, though, begin to build it from the bottom up. Intentional is the third thing. Intentional. It's not enough to have friends even though they can create a certain amount of emotional and spiritual health. I think relationships create that health, but making disciples doesn't happen by accident. We have to have intentional elements to include practical ingredients for spiritual growth. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is a maybe a well-traveled passage. 2 Timothy 2, Paul the Apostle, he says, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. If you look at that verse, there's four generations of people that he's talking about. Four generations of people. He's teaching people to to teach others who will be qualified to share it with others. And he says, then he says, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He he wants to please a commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should also be the first to receive a share of the crops. And then he says, um, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. I'm not going to explain all this right now, but you just think about it. That's what he says. He says in the letter, he says, you think about this and the Lord will give you insight. Well, I've been thinking about this passage. And you know what all these three, all these three characters in this passage, the soldier and the athlete and the farmer, have in common? I mean, they have several things in common. They're, they're working towards a goal that's way down the road. They're, they're, they're having to deal with discipline. 
and consistency. The military doesn't win unless they're well-trained. The athlete doesn't win unless he's disciplined every day. The farmer has to go out and work the soil in order to get the harvest. And then the third thing is they just, that, the, each of them have the, this, they, have to, they have to do this one thing that's very hard to do. They have to wait. They have to have patience. They have to let the process take its course. If there's one thing we don't want to do, it's let the process take its course. We want to close the deal. We want to meet our neighbor. We want to introduce them to Jesus. We want to pray the prayer. And then we want to send them to Ethiopia as a missionary. It's like, we, you, this, isn't, this isn't going to work. There's a long process where you're just walking through and loving them as a friend, but you're going to have to be intentional. And the question is, what does that intentionality look like? When I... When I'm training my boys, I have four boys in my house and one girl. And, and when I train the boys, I train them by doing the lawn, by doing the yard work. Oh, they hate yard work. There is a season in, the, in their life and their pro progress where they think I am the meanest dad ever. But it is that process of teaching them how and training them and holding them accountable and getting them used to that discipline and understanding what hard work is that is intentional intentional. And then I challenge them in that intentional way. So what does that look like? And all I'm saying is, I think we have to come up with more intentional ways. Now, what we've decided to do at One Chapel is we created an intentional on-ramp to discipleship, and it is a class. It's a 12-week class. We call it Catalyst. And Catalyst simply means we're catalyzing people's desire to be a disciple and to make a disciple. But the class isn't about being a disciple, right? It's not about, it's, you don't become a disciple because you went to the class, all this is is a catalyst, but, but it's, it's something intentional that people can, uh, can grab onto. Now, I resisted that class for a long time because I didn't want to have just another class. But I think there is a, there is, there, for all of us, there's, a, there's an issue of grabbing a hold of what Jesus is doing and walking with people. And here's what Mike Breen says, all right? You can write this down. Mike Breen says you, it, it, the best learning happens in three environments. Here it is. The best learning happens in three environments. The first environment is the classroom because there's learning. You have to learn. There, there, is, there is learning. You can't become a disciple without learning. Methides is a, is a that, that, I think that Greek word for, um, for, um, uh, for disciple. That's how it's translated. And it's learner. And so there's a, there's a process there where we have to be in the classroom, which means you have to have teachers, okay? The second environment is, it is um, an apprenticeship, an apprenticeship, or a, a, a model, a modeling workshop. You have to have somebody who will show you. So you have to have learning and teaching, so you, so you have a, a teacher, and then you have to have a mentor. And then the third environment is a culture. <laughs> there is a, he calls it immersion, Immersion. How does a two, how does a one-year-old learn how to talk? Do they learn it by learning all the grammar and going through all the English classes? No, they, they learn it because they're immersed in talking all the time. So the question is, how can we as the church make sure that people are immersed in a culture where people are just becoming disciples? People, when you stop and ask yourself that question... That's a very difficult question to answer because I think secular and sacred have been separated within, even within our churches and we kind of we, we lean in and then we lean out and we're not, we don't have an environment where this is normal, where, where, where new disciples are, are coming to Christ. And so, so, and even if they do, we kind of send them to a four-week class and then say, get in a group and then we, you know, hope, hopefully you'll be okay. So then, first thing, fourth thing is, it's got, besides, besides cyclical, relational, and intentional, it has to be spiritual. Spiritual. Hey, it's not a human process. We're not, this is a good phrase, we're not making disciples of ourselves. We're making disciples of Jesus, and that means the Holy Spirit's got to be involved. So the Holy Spirit has to have a part in this, and they have to understand that he has a part in this. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled faces, everybody say unveiled faces, unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory 
We unveil, so many people in our culture wear masks. We don't want to let people see the real thing. Paul says with unveiled faces. He's talking about Moses. There's a whole passage there. You can go back and read it. But if we unveil ourselves and then we walk, we reflect the Lord's glory. It is the Lord's glory that's at work in us, not our own work, not our own will. It is God's work is transforming us into his likeness with ever increasing. Everybody say ever increasing, ever increasing glory. It means it's an incremental process. There's a little bit of glory at the beginning and a lot more glory at the end. Which comes from the spirit comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All right. I've rambled on enough now. These are really important to me. I'm going to show you something that will uh, probably make you make your brain hurt. But I, I decided that I wanted to create something that I could use as a template that all the people in my church... So we have this on-ramp called Catalyst... But before that, we even have groups that will focus directly on new believers so they can get in right away. New people to Jesus, they get in a group right away and we try to make sure they're there. We have a group called the Seven Essentials and we essentially talk about, we, we essentially talk about prayer. We talk about, um, uh, oh, well now I can't name them in the context of this little thing, but I could normally name them. Um, <laughs> but we, we talk about prayer and then we talk about identity and then we, yeah, prayer, prayer and identity and then Father, Son, Holy Spirit, community and purpose, right? And we just kind of take them through that. It's like a seven-week thing and it's just constantly going so you can jump in at any time. And that just constantly goes. So, so new believers can have a place where they can kind of sit and ask questions and talk about things. But then Catalyst is the on-ramp. But then the, the goal would be that the whole church is in, involved in making disciples, that they're taking ownership of it. And if they're going to take ownership of it, it's, it doesn't mean I want them to come to a class. They're owning it in their own homes. That's the goal. So I wanted a template that they could know what to work on. Now, it occurred to me that if you, don't, if you can't describe what a disciple looks like simply and, and, and pretty um, clearly, that you might not be able to make one. So me and, me and a missionary sat down and I asked him, how, do you, how, how does the process work in a village? Because I didn't want to leave the, I don't want to go to the urban center and then kind of get all off track. I, I wanted to make sure the, the very core of what we're talking about works everywhere. So, so here it is. I'm going to show it to you. It's called the Disciple Circle. And uh, it, we're kind of we're working with it in our church right now. Disciple Circle, here it is. So you, you got vulnerability, and the question is, are you an open book? Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Jesus started discipling people before they even really followed him. Because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He ate with people and told them stories and provoked them with the kingdom of God. He told them stories and wanted stuff to get in them. And see, he started creating vulnerability with himself before they were even really in. I think this can happen for us. If we'll think about it, if we'll, be, if, if we'll think about it in a way that is careful and, and intentional and strategic, then there's something called devotion, which is who has your heart? Who has your heart? The first question is, are you open to God? Are you open to input? Are you open to what Glenn was talking about this morning, mystery? But then the next question comes, like, who, who really owns your soul? Like, who really has your heart? And where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? Where do you, what are you devoted to? And then the, if you go around, keep going around the circle, then you deal with something called identity, meaning who are you? Who do you see yourself as? Who do you think you are? What defines you? And then you begin to, to, to square that with who we are as God's kids. And we begin to talk about how he's our loving heavenly father. And if you look at the seven essentials, they all sort of line up with this little thing here. But here, and so the next thing would be submission. Ooh. Are you crazy? You're trying to teach submission in American culture? It's a terrible word. Because it leads to the, all these wrong conclusions. Submission is will you yield? <laughs> Will you yield to God? Will you yield to other people? Do you have to have your way? Each of these 
I know this, is, this would be a little weird for you. Each of these has an icon because I think we're an image-driven culture, so I want to get it in people's heads and hearts and souls so there's an icon attached to each of them. So submission is a yield sign. And it simply means, do you have to insist on your way or will you let other people have the right of way? The next is serving. Meaning, <laughs> if you're going to be a disciple, you really have to be willing to serve. If submission is being told what to do and be doing it with a good attitude, then serving is learning to spot the need and do it because that's who you are. Jesus himself said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. Disciples are people who serve other people and they do it naturally. They do it intentionally. And then finally, there's discipline. And when I say discipline, I'm, ta I'm talking about the spiritual disciplines. I'm talking about habits that create growth. The question there is, are you growing? Are you moving from season to season? Is there a, is there a growth process? Habits, spiritual disciplines actually create the seedbed, I think, in our souls for growth. Then you have influence. And the question there is, will you lead the way? At first I was, I was thinking about leadership here, but I think our, our culture is too indoctrinated with leadership concepts. And, and we're not, people think of certain thing when they think of leader. And certain words need to be redeemed and certain other ones we don't need to fight it, fight the battle. But this essentially saying everyone's responsible for influencing somebody else for Christ. Every person is responsible for investing in another person. If you call yourself a Christian, that means you're a disciple, and that means you make disciples. So I skipped, I skipped our definition we're using, and I'll end with that, and then we can ask a few questions because you've got three minutes. Here it is. Because <laughs> that, that's plenty of time, right? Uh, go back to the slide that has the definition of disciple, and here it is. It's, uh, and I don't know if we're going to, I don't know if this will last. We've been, been using this for a couple of years. And it is, and it, 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 that sounds funny for me to say, like I'm not committed to it. But I think there's different ways we can, we can define a disciple. A lifelong learner. There's that cyclical thing, right? You don't just learn it once. You learn over and over again in a deeper way. You don't just learn unselfishness one time. You have to learn it over and over again at deeper levels of surrender. A lifelong learner, follower, and friend of Jesus who makes disciples. That's all I got. I mean, actually, it's not all I got. I have a whole bunch of other stuff that I could have read from because I've just done so much incessant sort of reading and, and processing. I'm not advocating that this is the answer to everybody's discipleship problem. What I'm saying is I had to choose a way forward and I wanted to choose a way that was authentic and organic and relational and didn't just get defined by a little program. And, and I needed to coach our people how to live this way and how to act on it and how to be engaged. And this little circle that I just showed you, I mean, it's not a perfect circle. You go, and the reason I love that circle is because you could spend as long as a, a year on each thing, or you could spend a week, or you could spend a month, but the truth is you're going to come back to it. You're going to come back around and talk about vulnerability again. You're going to come back around in your life. You're going to talk about submission. It's just going to happen. It's just part of life. And that's okay. Now, the cool thing is under each of those headings are about five resources that we recommend to our people that they use for that subject. And so we have groups that can form around these things. Groups that can form for a semester, uh, talk about any one of those subjects, or and we have groups of all kinds. We don't, they don't just focus here. All right. I got one minute. Who wants to ask a really powerful question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't have enough time to ask that, to answer that, but I will tell you that Austin has um, many people in it who are um, gay and they are, or, or, 
and they're, or they're or they're experimenting or they're bisexual there is a sexual freedom thing in most cities uh, and what I have found is that as we deal with people relationally that it it creates all the proper language etiquette manners process journey um when we try to make big sweeping statements, we always fail. Because, because everybody's sexual. It's how we're, we're, we're wired up in a sexual way. Everybody is. And so where they are in their spectrum or in their mind or in their soul and uh, their history, I mean, you just can't know all those things. So there is a real need for this kind, for the for a discipleship model that allows you to walk with people as they discover how God designed us and what he wants from them. But you can't make them do it. I'll end on this. I'll end on this. You can't make anybody be discipled. (laughs) You can try. But if they don't want it, it's not going to happen. It only happens by permission, which means you have to win them over. Which means you have to invest before they're willing to surrender to that relationship. All right? All right. I, I, I fear I've done more damage than help. But I certainly, I certainly have given you a lot to think about and chew on. And some of it is old stuff. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for what you're doing in each of our lives, in each of our settings, in each of our communities, each of our contexts, each of our cities. Lord, you are the head of the church. And you will build it. You promise that. Now help us to make disciples. Help us to be willing to commit to the intentionality of it, to the surrendering of it, to the laying down of our lives of what's required in our culture. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.